Hello, sword people. Welcome to the Sword Guy podcast. This is your host, Dr. Guy Windsor, consulting swordsman, teacher, and writer. Join me for interviews with historical martial arts instructors and experts from a wide range of related disciplines as we discuss swords, history, training, and bringing the joy of historical martial arts into our modern lives. The episode show notes are at swordschool.com forward slash podcast, where you'll find transcriptions, photos, videos, and links for this and all the other episodes. While you are there, you can sign up for my mailing list and I'll send you a free copy of my Sword Persons Care Package. This includes four ebooks and access to several of my online courses. My newsletter goes out every week with updates about the podcast, my works in progress, and all sorts of cool sword stuff. You can unsubscribe at any time and there's never any spam. Before we get on with the show, I'd like to thank the people who make it possible, my patrons on Patreon. It takes time and money to run a podcast, and without them, I'd have quit long ago. Join us at patreon.com forward slash the sword guy for behind the scenes content to suggest future guests and priority access to my inbox. That's patreon.com forward slash the sword guy. I'd also like to thank Andrew Lawrence King for the Baroque harp accents that adorn the show, originally recorded for my Paradoxes of Defense audiobook project. It was my birthday on November the 30th, so as has become traditional, I have a present for you. You can use the code GUYTURNS49 to get £5 off any of my books at swordschool.shop or 30% off any course at courses.swordschool.com. The code will work until the end of December 2022. That's GUYTURNS49, all caps, all one word, at swordschool.shop and courses.swordschool.com. Most podcasts have sponsors who offer discounts to the listeners and money to the host. In the sword world, most of the companies and organizations offering products or services to sword people have tiny profit margins and precious little cash. So I thought I'd introduce a non-sponsor segment to the show where I call out producers of good sword stuff and recommend them to my listeners without getting paid for it. Of course, if your company is in that tiny overlap of having margins that allow for discounts and budget for sponsoring podcasts, and I can wholeheartedly and without reservation recommend you to my listeners, that last one is probably the killer, drop me a line at guy at guywindsor.com and we can talk. My non-sponsor this week is Freelance Academy Press, which is a publishing house dedicated to serving the historical martial arts community. It was founded by Christian Tobler, see episode 101, and Greg Melle, and it has a fantastic catalogue of books you may be interested in. Such as my own The Medieval Dagger, of course, but also their stunning critical editions of the Fiorian manuscripts, translations of Bolognese and Rapier texts, and works on German medieval combat. There's really something for everyone. So, if you're looking for something to read, go to freelanceacademypress.com. And now, on with the show. I'm here today with Veronica Young, an industrial designer, historical martial artist, and founder of Cryptid Combat Wear. Um, and she is also currently running a uh, campaign for um, making a breast protector for women which will actually fit and allow full movement. We're going to go into all the details um, during the discussion. But for now, Veronica, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Well, it's nice nice to meet you. Um, so just to orient everybody, whereabouts in the world are you? Um, I live in Atlanta, Georgia. 
Atlanta, in the US. Atlanta, Georgia. Okay. Um, where the Olympics were? Uh, yes, in 1996, I believe. Yeah, see, I was alive for that. <laughs> I, I, technically, I was too. Granted, I was two. So. <laughs> yeah, I was uh, 22, I think. So, there we go. Um, so, is there a lot of historical martial arts in Atlanta, Georgia? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so there's a bunch of clubs, but the club I belong to is Atlanta Historical Fencing Academy. Um, okay. And uh, that's where um, Mackenzie Ewing fights, um, Marcus Lewis fights and everything. Um, and Keith Cotter Riley runs the school. Oh, yeah. Okay. I, I know Keith. I, I don't know the other two people you just mentioned. I assume okay. they, they're tournament fencers, correct? Uh, yeah. Mackenzie right. was like top in the nation for a while. Okay. Cool. Excellent. Is that how you got started? You just sort of showed up to the club? Yeah, basically. I was like, I need a way to um, find like a better way to stay, get in shape, stay in shape, and be healthy and mm -hmm. stuff. And I was like, oh, well, maybe I'll do a martial art because competitiveness like kind of fuels me. And okay. so when I was looking at martial arts, I found this one gym that had historical fencing. And I was like, I'm done. I'm this is, I found it. We're, <laughs> we're here. And it's become like a core part of my personality now. <laughs> 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 yeah, you know, I, I think I think a lot of us can sort of resonate with that. Of course, you know, back in the day when when you couldn't just rock up to a club because there weren't any, and we had to actually start them. Um, we did find that there's basically two kinds of people: people who you tell them what you're doing, and they want further clarification, and they're not really sure, they don't really understand, whatever. And other people are like, oh, you fight with swords, I'm in. Where do I sign? <laughs> yeah, that's. I think that's still pretty true. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I have literally never tried to persuade anybody to take a historical fencing class. But if mm -hmm. you need to be persuaded, then it's probably not for you. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we have a whole bunch of people in the club that have started just because like one of their friends have been in there and was like, well, absolutely. We have one yeah. uh, woman who her sister has started joining because yeah. her sister keeps hearing about um, historical fencing and everything. And she's like, OK, well, I'm in. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. So what kind of styles do you do there? We're primarily German, so Joachim Meyer is primarily. Oh, you're yeah. Meyerist. Okay, yes. all right. Um, so, so Meyer Meyer would be your historical system of choice. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I've definitely looked at some of the others, but I've only been doing historical fencing for about four years now. Okay. Um, so, actually, coming coming up on five. Oh my god. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so I've looked at other sources, and honestly, this one just kind of makes the most sense to me. Okay. So are you, are you studying the source yourself or are you just getting it all from your instructor? Um, let's, I'm going to say about like 80, 20, 80, getting it yeah. from my instructor, 20 studying the source. Um, at Atlanta, we have like kind of a tiered, like a very loose tiered system. That's like, mm -hmm. Hey, if you study this much, take a test. And then you're yeah. like, okay, qualified as like whatever type of fencer. Um, I say very loose because like, nobody cares and we barely any and barely any of us do it but right i don't know it's there so i'm gonna do it <laughs> yeah sure um yeah my my feeling is that for some students uh, skill development milestones are really important they need that external structure yeah. and often it's cultural like um my club in singapore uh, had a very complicated and very strictly adhered to ranking system because that's what the culture there demanded. Oh, Whereas fascinating. My, my guys in Seattle um, told me straight up they had no interest in ranks whatsoever. And when I please stop talking about them, so I was like, yeah, yeah. I, I care. <laughs> yeah, we're pretty much the same here too. But, and I think for the most part, Keith is kind of um, 
it's like uh, filtered it out a lot, but it's still technically there. And so I'm just like, I'm yeah. just going to do it. And also, also for the stu- there, are, there will probably be students who prefer it and like mm-hmm. it, and it's good that it's there for them. Um, but also good that if you're not that into it, you don't have to care. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it's great because partially it forces me to, I need to go study the sources because like part of the test is like, okay, do can you like no, do these specific types of things? Like if I tell you, you know, what an ablofen is or like an abscessin, yeah. can you do it? Um, that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah, I guess it can, can be useful for the instructor to kind of know who's at what level and so you can make better choices about pairing up students and whatnot. Okay. Um, now, you mentioned Maya, so I'm going to go on a mm-hmm. massive detour away from the questions because a while ago I got a, I got a, I got a question from um, one of my regular listeners because I, I, I do an AMA very occasionally. Oh, and cool. He asked about... Um, women's knees doing specifically Maya. Okay. Okay. Because um, the way women's pelvises and yep. femurs work. We're not aligned. Can, yep. We're like yeah. this. So, yeah. so the femurs kind of point in towards the mm-hmm. knees. Um, and that can create mechanical issues in particularly Maya's footwork. So as you are a woman who does Maya, yeah. I thought, seeing as this, I was just thinking about this the other day. How do you protect your knees? That's a great question. And I would challenge it to say that it's not just Meyer. Um, it's oh, of course. Any, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's like any type of mar- it's like any type of like martial art just in general yeah, um, is going to have that issue. Um, and so, yeah, we it's actually I actually had to go to physical therapy for this because I didn't know what was going on. My knees started hurting a whole bunch. Oh, um, interesting. And. So basically what happens is, is that um, uh, our quads, our inner quad doesn't develop nearly as much because of like uh, the stance that everybody yeah. uses, a fencing stance. It doesn't get um, activated nearly as much. And so um, I am also a power lifter. So that helps oh, me. Right. Okay. That <laughs> um, would but help. yeah. Yeah, lots of like basically squats and like knee exercises just to help make sure that the in, that inner quad is built up. Um, but it happens to guys too. Um, my partner sure. had literally the same thing happen to him of just his inner quad wasn't developed as much as his outer quads and it pulls your kneecaps out of alignment. Uh, interesting. Okay, so what did you do specifically um, to develop the inner quad? Yeah, of course. Um, so lots of squats. So box squats, free squats, weighted squats, but also um, just a lot of um, like weighted lunges, like the band, the separated like band walks um, and just a lot of training outside of training. Um, yeah. My physical therapist told me something at the time that really stuck with me, which was you have to train for your sport. And yeah. so like I know that, you know, the word of oh, he was a sports like kind of whatever, but like still like you have to train for it. And so like that helps. Okay. I actually literally now, just had this conversation with one of my students like two days ago. <laughs> all right. 95% of my training time over the last 30 years has been training to be able to do the sword stuff. And about 5% of it has been swinging a sword around. Yeah, that's yeah. absolutely. Cause you, you need to be, able, your body has to be in a good position to be able to do the thing you want to do. Exactly. Yeah, good. Well, I'm glad that message got across when at your age, because <laughs> yeah. at your age you, you can you can recover from stuff pretty quickly and develop good habits and whatnot, and so that that establishes you nicely for a long fencing career. When we have students who are coming in in their fifties or sixties or seventies who haven't got that 
um, mm-hmm. haven't got like, the advantages of youth. Mm-hmm. Then we have to be super careful about the. Um, I don't call it cross training. Um, mm-hmm. I usually call it yumpa, which is a Finnish okay. word. I used to live in Finland, right? And so okay. I have a bit of Finnish. And yumpa is basically exercises you do for the sake of fitness rather than for fun. So basically, it can be oh, anything I love like weight, mm-hmm. weightlifting or calisthenics or pull ups or running, mm-hmm. whatever. It's all yumpa. Um, and so, like, everyone's personal yumpa is mm-hmm. different. Yeah, um, absolutely. And, and I, like what I, what I do works for me mm-hmm. in my 48-year-old body with my particular background and my particular mm-hmm. history of injuries and whatnot. Um, so necessary to adapt it to every mm-hmm. individual. Um, but what you say about the, the inner quads is interesting because um, the issue I would think is if you're used to getting away with it by if you have like plenty of strength on the outside of the leg, you can use that to kind of fake your way through regular squats. So what do you do to make sure you're targeting specifically the part of the leg that you want targeted? Oh yeah. Um, so, uh, weighted step ups, like single okay. leg step ups. Um, so you get like a box and then you, you step up onto the box, but only using the leg like the one leg that's on top of the box yeah. um, and then Bulgarian split squats. What is a Bulgarian split squat? It's you basically you get into like, oh, hold on, I'm going to have to do it and then I'll try to explain it as I'm doing it. Um, <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's really in the morning for me, but you get up, you put your back foot up on some sort of a, like a surface um, yeah. that's higher up and then you get into a, like a lunge position and okay. then you have weights in either hand and then you just dip into the oh dear god i've <laughs> got know. to have a go at those <laughs> yeah, um, you um yeah you just kind of sink down into it and basically what it does is it um it forces your quad that's up on the higher surface yeah. to have a larger range of motion and that's what you're using to like push yourself up and down and so that really targets ah. a lot of those like postural muscles in your knees okay so you're actually you're you the foot that's raised on the surface behind you you're actually using that leg actively it's yeah, you're using both legs actively, but you end up feeling it a lot more in the leg that's like on top of the raised surface. Interesting, because it, lo- it it could easily be that you you would do it more like a pistol squat, where you're basically just resting the leg on the thing behind you. What I saw, if I just saw the video, I would probably do it wrong. The video of, of what I just saw you do. Oh yeah, I would, I would probably look do it up. wrong because yeah, because <laughs> it, it looks like you could get away with just doing a pistol squat, but what you're saying, yeah, if you're actually actively using the back foot on the thing, that makes yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and uh, with weights, marvelous. it's killer. Okay, I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna have to um, make a reference to this conversation in the AMA. It's actually going out next week, so before oh, this nice. conversation goes out. But I will. I will. Um, I will jump in and record a little extra thing, and <laughs> or make a note in the show notes or something because that's that's fascinating. Um, yeah, so I definitely had to get used to like actually, like I said, training for my sport and realizing that like if I want to keep doing this for a long time, I'm going to yeah. have to like put in the effort. Um, and yeah. so, yeah. Excellent. Um, okay, so I understand you know a little bit about sports psychology. Uh, yeah, a little bit. <laughs> uh, okay. Um, if you just. Tell us a bit about your background in sports psychology and then how it applies to historical martial arts. 
Oh, yeah, absolutely. So um, obviously my background is in design, but part of the big thing about design is knowing people. Sure. The core idea of making doing a good design, like because I work in primarily UX design right now and product design, is you have to know who your audience is. So you have to be able to empathize with them and understand them. Um, so taking that kind of like psychological background of being able to apply it to my work, um, I my background in sports psychology is a lot of books basically because earlier this year um, I'm very competitive. So I really love competing and I want to be good at competing. And earlier this year, before one of uh, my tournament that I went up to in Michigan, I kind of had a giant breakdown because uh, I was putting so much pressure on myself to perform that my brain was not in the right spot. It was bad enough that like I was doing okay in classes. We were free fencing. I was doing fine. But then as soon as somebody started judging me, I was losing to beginners. Yeah. Um, and just that pressure just completely kind of like I collapsed a little bit. And so, you're so choking in effect. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think in baseball they call it the yips. Okay. Um, but yeah, so I realized that I, you know, if I wanted to continue doing this, I, I had to get my brain in order. And so I ended up reading a whole bunch of books on sports psychology. Um, the first one, The Brave Athlete, was recommended to me by Mariana Lopez. Um, oh, yeah. And uh, that really like kind of set my brain on the correct path of like, okay, this is how I have to get my brain in order to be able to compete consistently. Um, And realistically for me was resetting where my goals were. And so understanding and making realistic goals for myself. Um, And then from there, I ended up reading like four more books. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And uh, that's how I put the class together that I taught at IGX this, um, this past year is just really Applying it to historical fencing is really interesting because in sports psychology, you're talking about like you're talking about competitive sports, but what you're also talking about is sports that have a different motivation than we do when we're competing in HEMA because HEMA, it's a hobby, like at its core, we mm-hmm. winning doesn't like, we don't get anything for winning. Like we get our own personal satisfaction and we get like, you know, prestige and bragging rights, but we also don't. It doesn't mean all that much. Whereas if yeah, I win like a basketball it, championship, like NCAA or something along those lines, there's like a whole bunch of stuff that you get for yeah. that. Yeah. I mean, no, nobody's making a living off winning historical martial arts tournaments. Right. Exactly. Like in most, you know, HEMA tournaments, you know, don't, don't have any type of a prize. If you have, no. they have a like prize, it's like, wow, they, the whole, wow, they got a like sponsorship for this. This is, this is awesome. <laughs> um, and so because of that, there's a weird mental shift that has to happen. of just like, if I'm going to be serious about this, I have to be serious about this hobby. And it kind of has to turn into like your second job almost. Right. And so, cause going into that, it's like, okay, if you're going to be serious about this, if you, you know, if your goal is to win martial arts tournaments, to win gold, then you have to train for that. So you have to do the outside training, like weightlifting, and then you have to study like videos and stuff and like really get into the mindset of it. Um, I interviewed uh, Mackenzie Ewing for this and cause he, you know, was winning every single long sword tournament that he would go to. And he okay. was training like weight training, you know, five, six hours a week. He was watching videos of himself fencing, watching videos of other people fence, you know, like eight hours a week. There was like a consistent spending a lot of time on it. That's how you win tournaments. That's how serious fencers win tournaments. Yeah. I I used to do sport fencing back in, back in the late eighties, early nineties. And yeah, serious sport fencers is a sport and this is a tournament. Mm -hmm. Here are the rules. Here are the things that win. Mm -hmm. And you study how your opponents do Mm -hmm. things. You come up with game plans against specific opponents and you, 
you look watch yourself doing things and you figure out where you can improve and what what mm-hmm. things you should avoid and you do all the cross training and all mm-hmm. of the yumpa stuff and it is a job to, yeah if you take it seriously. absolutely um and so between that understanding like okay this is what i have to do to win like this is literally mm-hmm. this is like proven this is what you have to do and so that plus um just kind of getting my brain in the right space, getting my goals in the right space of understanding, okay, for the average, you know, woman fencer, it takes them about five to six years to medal. I went through HEMA ratings and went through okay. like <laughs> all of like the top 100 women on HEMA ratings. Okay. And you really care like, about this. Okay. I, I do. I do really care. <laughs> <That's fine. laughs> well, and also it, that's, that's under, that's what helped me get my brain in order is to do all of the research to understand, okay, this is how long it takes realistically for a yeah. person to do this. So like, you know, if I win a tournament at year two or three, okay, that either is a fluke or I'm just really that good. And so can you keep doing it? And yeah. if you go down after that one medal, then that means it was kind it was a fluke, not necessarily like a bad, like thing that you didn't yeah. have any like thing into, but, um, and so that was in April of earlier this year. I did got all my brain straight and whatever. And then by uh, June, I went to the Southeastern Renaissance Fencing Open Ooh. in Atlanta um, and won gold in the women's. Hey, well done. After doing um, all of that. <laughs> yeah, sure. Okay. So what were your goals before you got into sports psychology and what are your goals now? Sure. Um, so interesting. The goals haven't changed. So my okay. goal has always been to um, to be really good at competitive historical fencing, like just okay. be very good at it, win medals. But my other two goals are to make a positive impact on the HEMA community and okay. like be able to make friends. <laughs> um, and so, <laughs> That's a good goal. Yeah. Um, so the the goal of, you know, be competitive in HEMA and in Longsword hasn't changed. But what ha- ended up happening was, is that every single tournament that I would go to, I was putting pressure on myself. So you have to win gold this tournament. Ah, like it doesn't okay. matter. This one, you have to do it versus what I'm doing now, which is, okay. Um, in the last tournament, my goals were to win most of my pool fights, win over half of my pool fights, mm-hmm. and then win one elimination match. And so, okay, I have done those things consistently. And so then the next time I go to a tournament, it'll be win most of my pool fights and win two elimination matches. So the goal is shifted from it's not about it's not about winning because winning gold can be subjective depending on the tournament rule sets, who are the judges, what day it is, how you're feeling, how the other fencer is feeling. And so picking things that are more in your control is much better for your mental state because now you're not trying to com- literally compete against other people to win a medal. Yeah. You're competing against yourself. Yeah. And my, my goal when I'm fencing someone is almost invariably, I want them to come away saying that is the best fencing match I ever had in my life. Yeah. That's my goal. I mean, mm-hmm. and, and occasionally I've actually managed it, but it's, it's also, mm-hmm. it's, it's not in my control. Right, yeah, because absolutely. I have I have no control over their subjective experience of the match, but what I can do is I can give them what you know what I think will lead to the best fencing experience, mm-hmm. right? And whether they hit me or I hit them, I don't actually particularly care, right? Um, but then I, I I stopped doing tournament stuff about twenty years ago, so. <laughs> Uh, it's a bit yeah. diff- it was different when I was when I was going into tournaments. Then I then I went to tournaments to no 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 one's hitting me. I'm gonna fucking win this thing. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> no, 
<laughs> yeah, and I I have, I love that because it's just like okay, it's not about winning. It's about right. having fun. It's about the experience and shifting your brain to something that's either about the experience or competing against yourself. It's a lot mm. more within your control. And so you can walk away saying, okay, I met my goals. I didn't win, but that doesn't matter right. because only one person can win. And it's a toss up yeah. on whether like people can actually do it. So like at, I went to a tournament in Denver this past weekend. Um, well, not past weekend. It was like two weeks ago, but um I ended up getting silver in the women's because the the final fight, like the based off of the rules, how tired everybody was, and the other person was just a lot better than me. You know, I could have come back from it, but you know, based off of the time and how like how long we had to do it, you know, I wasn't able to get there. And so that, but that wasn't my goal. My goal wasn't winning a medal. My goal wasn't winning gold. My goal was to win two of my Elam fights. And I won all of them. So, (laughs) (laughs) yeah. Yeah, yeah, perfect. Uh, That's really interesting. Um, Okay, uh, slight left turn. um, But actually, I think quite closely related to the whole sports psychology thing. Um, What are your views on recruiting women and minorities? Okay, I get asked this a lot, Mm -hmm. right? But then I'm neither a woman nor a minority. So I don't have a, I mean, my, my best answer is representation matters. So mm-hmm. if you want people to come to your club who, um, you know, are of a particular type, make sure that they see people like themselves in your publicity mm-hmm. literature, people like yep. themselves demonstrating, people like themselves taking classes if possible, mm-hmm. that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but beyond that, what have you got? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, and that's a really big part of it is being able to see yourself doing it and see that, hey, I can do this. And so to a step further is also if you can have a um, a woman or a gender minority, I call them, I say underrepresented genders just because it's like a yeah, little okay. easier to say. Um, sure. But if you have an underrepresented gender as one of your instructors, so I'm one of the assistant instructors at Atlanta, actually. Um, and so I'll like help teach classes and everything. But people will walk into a beginner's class that I'm teaching and they'll stick around because, Hey, a woman is teaching the class. Like I can do this. Um, But another big thing that we don't often really talk about is culture and club culture. Um, And so the obvious things are, you know, make sure that the people in your club are being respectful of each other um, and not, asking for their phone number every single time you show up to a class. I went to Uh. a club a couple of years ago. Um, I had moved briefly and every time I showed up to the club, I had this one guy like constantly talking to me and asked for my phone number or like to go out on a date the three or four times that I went. And at last point I was, he gave me his phone number and I'm just like, I'm here to fence. Yeah. Um, and so yeah. that's, those are the obvious ones, but also just sure. being, being careful about safety. So understanding that like having a culture where if somebody's hitting too hard, you can tell them and it's not going to be mm-hmm. like a big thing, um, creating like a safe environment, um, for where people can feel comfortable competing or doing a martial art where you're, you know, the impetus is to like kill each other, but we're yeah. training. So it's, we're not trying to, we're not trying to hurt people. And just creating a good club culture that is welcoming, inviting to everybody. And so, like, we at Atlanta, we actually have the, um, 
it's like the all inclusive flag, but it's because it's like the the LGBTQ flag, but it also has like trans and like oh, yeah. black representation on it with the little triangle. We have that hanging over our door, and that's a pretty strong signal that you know everyone's welcome. Absolutely. Um, and so we've, um, when I did this talk on how to get more, you know, women and underrepresented genders in your club on it at IGX, um, uh, we, it was kind of the term of that's a green flag. So, uh, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. like being able to walk in and see, Hey, everybody is welcome. That's a green flag. And like understanding of, you know, everybody being respectful of each other, um, we also at Atlanta, I we started a kind of a resource group with inside of our club specifically for underrepresented genders, where we have like a Discord channel in our Discord of if you know people can ask questions about like gear gear stuff of just hey mm-hmm. I'm a woman I'm tiny <laughs> where do I find <laughs> gear that's going to actually fit me or like how do I do this because you know any you know standard kind of cis man. And Hema can go on the internet, and that because that question that whatever he has has been answered because that's right. the 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 larger community is mostly geared towards that. If so, you happen to fit the default, then right. there are plenty of options. Yeah, right. And I think the idea is the best thing to try to do in these circumstances to get more underrepresented genders into your club is to shift away from the idea that a cis man is the default, and right. understanding that. Everybody's going to have their own experiences. Everybody's going to have their own goals in HEMA. Um, mm-hmm. So people's goals might not be competing. And so being able to foster individual goals. Um, and then also, you know, the biggest one really is training women like fencers and not training them like women fencers. Ah, yes, absolutely. Okay, so, how do you do that? Yeah, um, basically, you know, when you're fencing, you are not a gender. Whatever yeah. it is. You are not a gender. You are a fencer. You are a person with a sword. And so training everybody as a person with a sword, regardless of what their gender is, is very important. Because instead of saying, okay, which I have been told this, well, you're a woman. You'd be really good at rapier because that's more technical. <gasps> women are better at technical things. Oh, fuck. Okay. <laughs> I, I, yeah. I'm just thinking Jessica Finley and her wrestling. <laughs> Yeah, right. exactly. I'm sure she has been told that like something along those lines yeah. many a time. But but you know she she's a way better wrestler than I'll ever be. Oh um, yeah, that she's I, outstanding. I, yeah, and you know I had her over to Finland when I was living in Finland, and she taught a seminar for me on medieval wrestling stuff. Mm-hmm. And yeah, the, the students really enjoyed it because she kept throwing me around the place. But for some throws, she picked a different person to demonstrate on because i just wasn't good enough and that that actually was a really useful object lesson for my students mm-hmm. right um but also i've had the experience of you know uh, doing like throws and whatnot doing dagger stuff mm-hmm. um a male student literally unwilling to throw a woman onto the ground mm-hmm. right and sometimes what fixes that is I, I come up and the woman gives me the, the feed for it and I toss her on the ground a few times. Yeah. And and sometimes that does it. But sometimes the cultural conditioning is so strong yep. that it just doesn't work and I have to find her a new partner, right? Yeah. And we, are, we, are, we are coming up against this sort of, you know, boys are told to not hit girls, which is probably a good thing because boys hit girls too much. I mean, nobody um, should hit anybody. <laughs> right. Yeah. But, but yeah. yeah. Um, but, you know, most domestic violence is male on female, right? Um, 
Not all, but most. Yeah. Uh, so we have this sort of this cultural programming to work against and enabling the blokes in the class to view the women as just fellow martial artists. I've not found a solution for it. I've been looking for one for a decade or so, but it's super hard. Any yeah, thoughts? absolutely. These, I mean, and to your point, the stereotypes go in both directions. So sure. yes, women or men are told like, oh, you're not allowed to hit women or you're not supposed to, that kind of a thing. And women are told you're not allowed to do a physical physical yeah. thing because you're not supposed to, that kind of thing. And yeah. so that's another big barrier to entry for a lot of women into the sport is just, you know, my mom's not happy I do this. because she, yeah. really? I mean, it's, I think it's mostly because I get hurt occasionally. But it's also yeah. just like a, you know, d- you know, do something safer, like because you know you're delicate. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the, the powerlifting medalist is delicate, <laughs> certainly. Yeah, fine. Yeah, there, there's a whole thing there, but <laughs> and so a lot of that is really just about creating an environment where everybody feels safe, um, which is kind of coming back to that is just creating this environment where you um everybody feels like a fencer and is is able to be able to do things because a lot of the thing about oh don't hit a girl is yes the moral internally don't hit somebody that's really bad but it's also like you said the social the um, social and cultural connotation of don't hit it of just like that cultural backlash of you hit a woman like you're not allowed to do that and so creating an environment in which you can have those types of conversations, you can have those types of activities where they don't feel like they're going to be attacked or do like that. They're doing something wrong um, is really, really helpful. Um, But I think also, you know, when you're training throws and you're training grapples, because we do that all the time um, at at Atlanta, we like we'll throw pommels, all that kind of stuff, obviously with the utmost safety, but like we don't say, Oh, you can't do this grapple because you're a woman. We'll still train it. Yeah, although although you have to be okay, someone who's good at grappling has a deep intuitive understanding of how joints work, mm-hmm. right? And so they can grapple safely with someone with you know non-standard shaped joints and maybe with medical conditions around joints and maybe you know torn rotator cuffs or whatever. And the thing is, you know, women's elbows behave differently on average to men's elbows. Yeah. So there are things you can do to a man's elbow that you mustn't do to a woman's elbow. And conversely, things that you can do quite happily to a woman's elbow that you should never do to a man's. So, but to my mind, if, if the, if the person applying the lock is taught to feel what's going on, those problems go away because, you know, there's more difference between someone who's just had rotator cuff surgery and someone who hasn't than there is between the average male shoulder and the average female shoulder. Yeah. Um, so the two things that we do whenever we're doing, the first thing is whenever we're doing grapples with a sword, we never put it inside the elbow. We'll either put it on the bicep or we'll put it on the forearm because realistically when we're training, we're training, yes, we're training the martial aspect of it, but at least from the way that, you know, Meyer teaches a lot of his grapples and stuff, it's about submission. It's not about hurting somebody. It's not about necessarily like throwing them. It's uh, at least, you know, wrap ring and bunch shirt with a sword. Um, but secondly, it's also, I call them more like 
immutable physical characteristics that can be ascribed to a person. And so like you mentioned, we mentioned earlier with, you know, cis women's or, you know, assigned female at birth, AFAB people's uh, knees and hips are at an angle. And so that's going to be a thing. And so you're, that's an immutable physical characteristic that is going to affect your physicality and how you fence. And so being able to say, to everybody, hey, everybody, this is how, you know, in fencing, your knees could get, you know, messed up because your kneecap gets pulled out of alignment because the the quad imbalance. Um, but also making sure to, if you have like a, you know, underrepresented gender only class to be, make sure you absolutely say that because yeah. you're not going to have a bunch of AFAB people in that class, but you're going to have more than you normally would in like a regular mm-hmm. class um, and just understanding, okay, well, I'm a shorter person. I'm not short because I'm female. I'm short because I'm just shorter. And so understanding, (laughs) okay, I'm not going to be able to do a short edge cut to a six, four person's head. I did do that one time and it was my greatest (laughs) achievement to date. But but for the most part, like you, um, you, you know, as a shorter person, I can't go over. So I'm going to go under. And so as a taller person, you can go over, but it's going to be harder to go under. And so that's not necessarily gender specific. No, that's, that's height, height specific. specific. Yeah, exactly. Sure. And so shifting it away from gender stuff to height or to oh, reach. Body characteristic stuff. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, things yeah. that are just, this is about you as a person. And so, you know, because you have longer legs, you know, you can do bigger lunges that like that are safer. You could get have better footwork or, you know, because you have longer arms, your reach is going to be more than people are going to expect. So like being able to play with those types of things. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, you did actually see, I mean, obviously I do research for these interviews and mm. obviously, very obviously from the pattern of the questions, perhaps the most useful vein of my research um, was going to the IGX website and having yeah. a look at your class plans, <laughs> right? But you've led us very nicely onto your next IGX class, which was about um, tactics for small offences. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I am boringly of medium height. I'm like just under five foot nine. So, mm-hmm. you know, I'm, I would be tallish for a woman, normalish height for a man, but there mm-hmm. are plenty of, you know, many of my students are well over six foot two mm-hmm. and many of my students have been well under five foot two. So, mm-hmm. um, but you know, I, I, I can't really, I haven't experienced being massively taller. Yeah. And I haven't experienced being massively shorter. Mm-hmm. Although I did once fence someone who was six foot eight. So that's. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty tall. <laughs> yeah. It wasn't a problem. I was going for his hands all the time. Oh, yeah. Cause, so, cause okay. I can reach him. This, exactly. And so I'm, I'm assuming this is what you're getting into, but. Yeah, yeah. I'm, uh, about, I'm about to ask you. How, <laughs> how would you summarize your approach on tactics for small offenses? Go ahead. Yeah. So it's. And so my class at um, at IGX was about the height. It was about height differential. So for the most part, unless you're exceptionally of average height like you are, you are always going to be the taller fencer at some point, and you're always going to be the shorter fencer, unless you are Mariana Lopez, who is like four (laughs) ten, or you're Joe Lilly, who is six seven or six eight or something like that. Um, And so you're always going to be taller or shorter in some aspects. And so understanding. The class is about understanding what your advantages and disadvantages are in different scenarios. Right. So if you're the shorter fencer and you're against taller a taller person, yeah, you're going to you're not going to go for deep targets nearly as much. Or if you are going to go for a deep target, you have to like commit. Um, so a lot of it was about distance. And so in 
in Meyer, at least you in Lichtenauer, it comes from Lichtenauer. Um, you have the three kind of timings of a fight. So you have the Zufecten, which is like before. Then yeah. you have the Krieg, which is like in like war, like in it. And then yeah. you have the um, Abzug, which is the get out, basically. Yeah. And so that's really about timing, and there's not really one about distance. And so I defined in the class four distances, which is I called uh, it was like out of distance, edge of distance, in distance, and uh, like core on core. So <laughs> I joked it was um, out of distance was fuck around distance, and yeah. core on core was find out distance. <laughs> <laughs> and so when you're fighting a person who is the same height as you, both of those distance calculations are going to be the same for each of you. So yeah. when you were at your edge of your distance, and I, I define that as, is like you take one passing step and now you're in distance is like, yeah. and so that when each of you are at the edge of your distance, you're at like a weak, weak kind of tips touching kind of um, distance. That's going to be the same for you. But if I'm fighting somebody who's six, two or six, three, my edge of distance is there in distance. Like, Easily, yeah. Yeah. So they can just reach out and touch me, whereas I'm going to have to like take a step in to get there. So it was really about, OK, either, you know, you're going to stay stay out of distance more often and go for their hands, like you mentioned, of like go for shallower targets or you get in there. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, so see, I guess the six foot eight chap, there was no way I was going to get in there because you have biceps as big as my head and was a really good wrestler. Okay. Yeah. So, so like, no the, way. I'm not going. Yeah. There. Yeah. Yeah. So in those, that's like the mental calculation you do, like when you see when you see your partner. So, yeah. um, I one of the things that I do the best, which I talked about in the class, is you have abzug, which is like retreating undercover, mm -hmm. basically. So basically, you're getting out, you're throwing a cut, so you can't get hit. But you, if you're a shorter fencer against a taller person, you have to advance undercover as yeah. well. And so, um, typically, what I talked about doing is is like if you're a shorter person your first cut it should be like to their head if you can but you're throwing it with the expectation of not necessarily attacking you're throwing it with the expectation of parrying because you know that when you go to cut they're going to go to parry you but their parry can still hit you in the head but your parry your cut initial cut won't reach them unless you like yeah. jump jump in so what you're doing is you're breaking the guard and a fury would, mm -hmm. would call that um, using posta longa to taste the guard yeah. Basically, to get them out of their guard position. Okay. Yeah. And yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Um, no, I was just thinking because um, if you're both out of measure, you're both safe. But the problem with being shorter than your opponent is there is this zone where they can hit you and you can't hit them. So yep. my view is your job is to get past that zone as quickly as possible. Mm -hmm. So you have to go in. Yep. Um, but you have to go in without without basically giving them an opportunity to hit you. And that, that's the trick. And honestly, yeah. if we look at, like, all the historical sources have ways of doing that, which basically mm -hmm. involve getting your opponent's weapon out so you can get control of it. Yeah, absolutely. And so it's it's very similar to, like, obviously you're doing that same thing if you're the same height and you're just fighting normally, you're in the creek normally. But it's more important if you're the shorter one to be able to do that more effectively so that you do yeah. have the opportunity to do something. And then also from the opposite side of things, if you're the taller fencer and you know that the person you're fighting is pretty good, like you know that they're going to do something along these lines, you know that they're going to try to get your get you out of your guard. And so now that's where like feints and stuff can come in of just like, okay, I'm I'm teasing you to do this and I know you're going to come in and try to, you know, advance undercover. So I'm going to get around it. Well, yeah, what most tall fencers in my experience like to do 
is as the shorter person gets in, comes in towards their measure, they retreat and they hit you on the retreat or they try to hit you on the retreat. It mm-hmm. is irritating. It is really irritating. Yeah, it absolutely is. But then if you're also, if you're advancing undercover, that advance undercover really just becomes at that point a retreat undercover because like, okay, they're backing up. Okay, you just get out fine. Let's reset and keep going because they can't back up forever. Uh, yeah, no, I just chase the fucker down. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, my, my view is, okay, get them moving backwards. Brilliant. You keep them moving backwards. Yeah. Because if you can if you can control the strikes that they're throwing at you as mm-hmm. they're moving backwards, then eventually, yeah, they run out of ground. And most people, if they're reasonably well-trained, can take two or three steps backwards and maintain their structure. Mm-hmm. But very few can take more than four or five and mm-hmm. actually still maintain their, their fencing structure. So, yeah. Yeah. Make the fuckers run away from you. It's great. <laughs> um, and so, like, it was the class is also about footwork too. Of just if you're the smaller fencer, you have to be a lot better at your footwork um, because yeah. you have to be able to move around a lot better. So I mentioned Mariana and Joe Lily earlier. Um, and so, like I said, Mariana is four ten, four eleven, and Joe Lily's six seven. Um, they competed against each other in a single hand weapon tournament in July, really? and Mariana won. Wow, fantastic. Because she is phenomenal at footwork. She is like she teaches footworks classes like and you know, yeah. she has a really good class on that and she's phenomenal. And so she got in there and was getting, you know, cuts to the hands, cuts to the shoulders and everything and he had no idea. Like if you watch the video of it, it looks like a mouse taking down an elephant. <laughs> um, because she comes in every time and will get him on the hands and he just backs into the corner has no it doesn't look like he has doesn't any idea what, to, what do. to do he's a good fencer but it yeah. was just it's so fascinating to watch this happen because she's so good at footwork she was able to give herself the space to do what she wanted to do that's fantastic excellent okay well, yeah we should find find that fight and stick a stick a link in the show notes Brilliant. yeah um, i know it's recorded somewhere <laughs> sure okay now um, I do have to ask, what is cryptid? Sure. <laughs> okay. It's a funny story. <laughs> so Tell this it. was a hilarious nickname. Design cryptid was a hilarious yeah. nickname given to me by some of my friends because there's that, like that joke going around on the internet of that like meme of this one programmer who signs up for like gets hired by a company to fix a feature about a website and then quits two weeks later after he fixes it or something along those lines. Um, okay. I actually, you, you obviously move in different parts of the internet to write it, so I've never come across this. That's fine. Um, but uh, I kind of ended up doing that a little bit. So I worked for um, Kroger, the um, the food chain, uh, like the grocery store chain, mm-hmm. and I worked in their UX department. And so uh, I was the lead designer for their cart and checkout services. And so okay. um, their scheduling service before I got there was terrible. It was like confusing to use and it was not great. So I was at Kroger for 15 months and it ended up being that I ended up fixing the scheduling portion, like online. So you could like schedule to pick up your groceries for delivery or whatever. I fixed it and then I quit (laughs) (laughs) like a month later. And so it's, it became a running joke and joke in my friend group of, Oh, you're the design cryptid. You show up, fix things and then leave. (laughs) So what, what does the word cryptid itself actually mean? Oh, um, it's a term for um, 
like a type of monster that is like unseen or unknown, uh, like the um, Bigfoot or Nessie, the Loch Ness monster. Are oh, cryptids. they're cryptids. Ah, yeah. okay. Yeah, so it's like those kind of like mythological figures, but it's not right. like you know like a history mythological kind of thing. It's yeah. more of like a common cultural one. Okay, so so you you've named your is it a company or organization? Yes. Or? Um, I actually, I did start a business. It's the design cryptid LLC is the actual business, but the like deep, the doing business as name or like the brand name of the, the combat where is cryptid combat where, because it, one of, one of my friends thought of it and I was like, I kind of rolled off the tongue. It's great. (laughs) I'm going to keep it. It's good. That's very good. Um, okay. So you're like, you're like the Yeti of, of (laughs) historical martial arts equipment. Yeah. I'm going to show up, I'm going to fix it and I'm going to (laughs) leave. Because honestly, people have been looking for the Loch Ness Monster for hundreds of years and nobody's mm-hmm. found it and people mm-hmm. have been looking for decent chest protectors for women for a hundred years and nobody's found it so actually this is pretty pathetic so what what are you building and how are you going about it sure um so it, it came about because uh like last june in 2021, I got so fed up with my chest protector because I had I have had one of the PBT chest protectors, but I bought mm-hmm. the men's version and then I took it and I've stuck it in the oven yeah. at like 400 degrees until the plastic melted. And then I put it on my body to f- like form. Refit it to my, um, I put some like more towels on, but it was hot. I, I yeah. wouldn't totally recommend it, but it does work. Sure. <laughs> um, okay. And so it worked a little bit better, but I had to modify it so heavily to get it to just at the bare minimum, not bruise the underside of my biceps whenever I was wearing it. Um, So I was like, wait a second, I'm a designer. (laughs) I could fix this. Okay. And so it took a year and a half of testing um, to figure out exactly how it would work. Um, But I did a lot of research on historical plate and like armor, like harness vectin to see how did their chest protectors work. And so the big thing about harness is their um, the cuirasses, I think is what they're called. Um, Curious, is yeah. they um, they come in a lot more to allow for you to cross your arms, and so yeah. the actual protection of the cuirass comes in a lot further than you think because they have the pauldrons on the shoulder to cover that gap, or they're wearing mail yeah. to cover that gap. And so I was like, okay, how do I do that? But with like plastic and foam. So okay. I basically did effectively the same thing where the you've got the plastic on the front and then the foam protection underneath protects everything else that's like open and so because of the way that it's put together you can cross your arms in it and like the foam will push in kind of underneath and around Mm -hmm. and when you open back up again the foam is protecting literally coming from you know the edge of your shoulder underneath your armpit and down like down to your side to protect you from like those thrusts and everything like that um and so between un- like understanding that of how can I cross do a, you know, close handed ox yeah. um, and be able to do that in gear. Um, and then also like, OK, the chest protectors that exist on the market are just plastic with elastic straps put together. Can I yeah. do this in a more in a better way? So the, the plastic protector on the front actually attaches with straps so it comes off. And so mm-hmm. you can wash the fabric underneath. <laughs> Shock horror. <laughs> yeah. Which, yeah. Um, and You're not supposed to be able to wash your gear. It's supposed to build up this kind of protective fog around it. 
and just go show up to tournaments with like the sweat stains on. Yeah, yeah, on. yeah, yeah. Oh, I no. can smell that mental image, and I, I hate it. I, I know. I, yeah, I know. I, I have. I have fenced people. Who you knew when they were attacking because you could <laughs> smell them coming. Yeah, yep. not good. Really not good. No, absolutely not. Um, but I also like for the design looked at. Uh, like military plate carriers and yep. bulletproof vests to say, okay, how do how do people put these on quickly? How do people like what is the method of attachment? And so basically taking all of that together because basically that's just the modern version of the curious. And yeah. how does all that work together? And basically creating the cryptid combat wear chest protector. Okay, now when I'm I blasted your. Uh, Indiegogo campaign out to my mailing list last week and um, I got a question back from a woman um, who wants to know how you can uh, accommodate for right, the industry standard is women with small chests have small breasts and women with large chests have large breasts mm-hmm. um, What? how do you handle women with small chests and large breasts or large chests and small mm-hmm. breasts? How do you cope with that variation? Sure I'm, the short answer is by ignoring it because... Okay. How's that going to work? Uh, uh, yeah. Um, when a woman or a person with breasts is... Doesn't matter what size they are. Doesn't matter what size you know their breasts are. When they're you know at doing an active sport, you put a sports bra on, yeah. which doesn't... You don't have individual boobs when you're when you put a protector on it's just one curved surface and it's that curved complex like surface that causes a lot of issues with um like with chest protectors and stuff um because the male chest protectors are just flat um and so by curving having the surface of the chest protector curved but not an individual boob cup you don't have to worry about different chest sizes because as long as the protector is flexible to fit perfectly on your body, then it doesn't necessarily matter what your chest size is in relation to your body because it's going to fit everybody regardless. So, so basically chest- every, everyone who has a, a circumference around the chest and breasts of a particular mm-hmm. length, it will fit that regardless of what the relationship is between sort of chest and breast. Yeah, because we're not okay. when you're a chest protector is not a bra. And so no. that's one of the other reasons why I wanted to build something along these lines is because the women's chest protectors online are just individual boob cups. That's which terrible. It's yeah, because if you don't fit within that particular size, then it's going to like squish down and it's terrible Um, or it's going to you're going to get hit in one of those like curved surfaces and it's all the force is going to go into your sternum. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I I saw somebody did studies on, you know, like fantasy armor for women has like these separate metal mm -hmm. cones or whatever. The thing is, if you have if you have that, then any strike to the breastplate is going to end up smacking into the sternum, right? All right. the forces go straight into the sternum. You're going you're gonna to break your sternum that way. It's much like we were talking about earlier with, you know, women and underrepresented genders in HEMA. You are a fencer. You are not your gender. And so yeah. Yeah. I am a fencer that has breasts, so I'm going to accommodate for that. So my particular, my chest protector design, um, the straps, the like the Velcro on the sides, you can adjust it to exactly what your your you know circumference is your width is um and then also the straps on the shoulders are adjustable as well so you can put it on and adjust the shoulder straps so that it fits perfectly to you specifically 
versus having to get either uh-huh. different sizes or anything. So it's it's very adjustable to accommodate literally any body type. Okay, so so you can adjust in sort of in the sort of horizontal plane and you can also adjust in the vertical plane to get this yeah. plastic shield in the right place. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I have, I have to think that at the extremes of size, you can't quite have a one-size-fits-all, surely. No, yeah, at the absolute extremes of size, it's very, very difficult to do that. Um, and so, you know, that's when you're getting into, like, having to get custom, you know, protection and stuff along those lines. But for the most part, we have, I've got four sizes of this chest protector. And so oh, okay. the, the smallest size of chest protector is, will cover a 28-inch chest around like the breast circumference and then the biggest one covers up to a 60 inch wow that's a pretty big range yeah and so there's there's only four sizes and so i i took a look at what the measurements were for the spez women's jacket Mm -hmm. to understand like what size ranges are those together and then i also looked at um, the brand old navy's size chart and the brand universal standard um what their size chart was and like okay what are the ranges that that we can get? And then I tried to make sure that I was covering very well all of those ranges. Because yes, I I know it's unfortunate that that's not unfortunate, but it's unfortunate that brands can only cover a certain a certain size, and people are bigger or smaller than that. And so accommodating just kind of everybody can be difficult. But I'm covering at least more than we are now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and it is a pretty it's pretty unlikely. You don't, you don't find terribly many women doing historical martial arts who are smaller than that or larger than that. No, yeah, it's and that's why I looked okay. at the the um the Spez women's jacket specifically because if I'm remembering correctly, the um the uh, women's group Esfinges actually yeah. got a list of all of like women's sizes together and sent it to Spez to say, please make your jackets in these sizes <laughs> right, <laughs> because this okay. is what size we are. And so I was like, okay, this was a very good like. Uh, like look at what the industry is and what the industry is doing and like who is buying this stuff. Right. Yeah, it sounds like you've got it all pretty pretty well thought out. <laughs> I, one is my degree and two, much like all of my research into sports psychology earlier, I, I like being thorough. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and clearly, yeah, you're, you're making the product that you want. So you have mm-hmm. at least one customer. Yeah, I actually, so I had four iterations of this chest protector as I like went through the process of figuring out like how it would go together and what the construction would be. And so I've actually been wearing the Mark III for a year. So if anybody has seen me fence within the last year or so, I'm wearing that chest protector. And and I assume you've been hit many times in the chest during that. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, And and it works. More so than I would like. Yeah, (laughs) But, but, but it works. Oh, absolutely. Um, and so I've been hit basically everywhere on the chest and it's way more protective than my last one. Um, I have a video that I posted to the website, um, Cryptid Combat Wear, and to the Facebook page of uh, my partner like hitting me with a sword with it on. And he's not going, he's not going soft. He's like kind of baseball swinging at my chest and nothing. Fuck. Fantastic. Okay. So how's the campaign going? So far, so good. I think we're at twelve percent now, if I'm remembering correctly. So we're just over six thousand um, dollars. Okay. Um, which we've got. Do you, do you need to hit your target to make it, or are you going to do it anyway? 
I'm going to do it anyway. So the, actually, okay. I was going to do it on Kickstarter first, but I switched over to Indiegogo specifically because it has the flexible funding option, meaning right. whatever money you collect, you get. And so I am um, very passionate about this. And so I was just like, I need at least a little bit of startup funds, but yeah. I can do this regardless. So my goal is 50,000 um, and that's to cover everything from yeah. all of the manufacturing, which I have all the manufacturers lined up already. I have gotten samples from the apparel manufacturers already. So basically as soon as the campaign closes, I, I'm, I'm like going, like I already yeah. have it together. I don't have to worry about all of that. I've got shipping figured out. So it's not going to be seven years between yeah. the campaign closing and this coming out. It's going to be a reference to gloves, I think. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, all right. Let, 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 let's not cast shade, however enjoyable <laughs> that might be. But um, okay. So when does the campaign end? The campaign ends on January fifth. January fifth. Um, so, okay. Twenty twenty three. Okay. Yeah, 2023. Yeah, this upcoming. So it goes for 60 days. And yeah, it, it doesn't matter if it doesn't make it because I any orders that I get, I will be fulfilling. Okay, but it's better if it does make it because then you also yeah. get access to various... Basically, Indiegogo will start spreading the word for you as well a bit. So critically important, how do people mm -hmm. find the campaign? Obviously, we will put a link in the show notes, but mm -hmm. how do people find the campaign if they're just going to pull out their phone right now and start typing the, the link in? Go. Yeah. Um, if they go to cryptedcombatware.com, um, the link is on that website. Um, basically, the first button that you see when it appears. <laughs> That's um, cryptid, C-R-Y-P-T-I-D, mm -hmm. combatware. Okay. Yeah. Because it, it's good to spell these things out just in case. Yeah, yeah just in case. <laughs> so um, cryptid yeah. combatware, and you'll find the link there, and brilliant. And and if you are a, a person with boobs and you want to do historical martial arts, you should go there and buy it straight away. Yes. Absolutely. Um, the other thing I will add too is that in the year and a half that I have that I've been working on this, I have actually tested this with other people. So Mariana Lopez, who I mentioned earlier, yeah. four ten, four eleven, she wore it and loves it. And okay. I made I, I made the medium size for her, or the small size for her, um, and I just I based it off of the measurements that I have in like the size chart that I've posted. Um, fit her really well and she like adores it but then i also sent it to um the women um the people with uh, breasts out in denver who tested it as well who are all different sizes of, of person and so i've gotten a lot of really really good feedback from them excellent okay brilliant okay i i think i think anyone listening who, who might be interested should probably be swayed by this point all right um okay and they have until january 5th to support the campaign mm -hmm. excellent all right yeah Okay, so you, you've done quite a lot in not very much time, but uh, there are a couple of questions I ask all of my guests. And the first is, what is the best idea you haven't acted on yet? You know, you sent me this question and I had a, I was really, had a really hard time thinking about this because mm -hmm. like the biggest, like if you would have asked me this question a year and a half ago, it would have been a chest protector. Sure. And if you would have asked me this question six months ago, it would have been to run my own underrepresented genders tournament. But that tournament is happening in March. Hey, morning. well done. <laughs> <laughs> and okay. so I think, uh, I think then I'm, I, I took my sports psychology class and I think I want to try to write a book on it of specifically about sports psychology for HEMA. 
Okay, so you're going to write a book on sports psychology. Okay, not you're going to, but you haven't acted on this idea yet of writing a no. book about sports psychology for historical martial arts. Okay. No, I just with how the class went at IGX and the questions I got from it and just some of like, you know, even asking about it, talking about it here, I realized that it, it's such an interesting topic that people in HEMA don't really think about and don't really like talk about all that often because in ad- in addition, which is kind of it was part of my talk as well, is that a lot of us in HEMA, this is like the first physical activity that we've done. Like a lot of us didn't do sports when we were in school. And so when you're in school, you have the opportunity you're put up against those things about, you know, losing and, you know, losing to judges or, you know, you have, but you have, you know, conceivably you have the support as a child to kind of go through that and understand it, internalize it, and then be better for it, um, kind of come out stronger for it. But in HEMA, we don't have that support network really all that much. And we also don't have, we're adults now. And so, we, we come into HEMA with a certain like set of understandings about like how the world works and stuff. And we're not often confronted with the black and white of competing that you, you either won or you lost. There's no gray area in competing. And so coming up against that as a child is, it's a lot different where you're a little bit more malleable than as an adult. And so all of those factors together make HEMA so fascinating when it comes to sports psychology. And so I've, been doing a lot of research to really understand that a lot better okay is it are you thinking of writing a book on like the theory of this or are you writing it more as a um a training guide to people to get their head in the right place i think definitely more of the latter because i think that's what i'm more equipped to be able to write about i don't think i definitely don't have the training to be able to kind of write about the theory nearly as much but with my you know background in design and and like all of that kind of stuff i feel like i have a pretty good understanding about how can i basically write out a not like a step-by-step guide but like a guide of how to understand hema as a like competitive sport and uh, okay, but, see, but historical martial arts, the the competition side of it is one small part mm-hmm. of the whole, right? Yeah. And to my mind, the sport, the psychological aspect of training is as important, if not even more important, mm-hmm. in the other areas. Absolutely. So are, and- are you going to apply it to that too? Yeah, because training training is a really big part of it as well. But then also HEMA, this is another reason why HEMA is so fascinating, is competition and training in HEMA is just one tiny part of HEMA. Yeah. Like you have people who like they solely focus on studying the sources and translating the sources. And that is its own section of HEMA yeah. where you can kind of do similar things. You can have similar goals but you know, maybe not competition wise. And so there's that section there. And then there's just like the social section in its entirety. And you have each of these big areas that kind of intersect. But also, that don't also really the, exist. In other but also most critically to my mind, it's the training people in how to kill. There's a yeah, massive ethical and psychological area there that if you're taking the martial side of it seriously, you absolutely have to address. Yeah. The ethics of it and the, mm-hmm. like, under what circumstances would it be okay to actually stick my sword through somebody's head? Right. right. And that's when you get into some really deep, like, yeah. 
you know, legal and psychological and philosophical questions is where you really get right. into a and lot of it with that. Honestly, from, from the psychological perspective, that's where my interest lies. Mm-hmm. Right. It's, it's the reason this is, or a major reason why this is so fascinating for me is because we are dealing with, um, the purpose of these arts is to kill people. Right. Mm-hmm. And often not in self-defense. Usually not in yeah. self-defense. Usually you're killing people because either you're a knight or whatever and that's your job or you are a gentleman or touchy person in, uh, in 17th century Italy and someone has said they didn't like your scarf. Mm-hmm. Right. And, yeah. and so now you have to murder them. <laughs> right. Uh, and, yeah, obviously. And, and getting, Getting people to engage with that side of it is actually quite mm-hmm. hard because most people come for, you know, defense of their friends, which is a perfectly good way to spend time. But I think most of the kind of the deeper benefits of the training come in when you take into account this is for killing people. How do we feel about that? Yeah. And, and being able to understand also kind of in training of, yes, martially, this is for killing people, but how do you train this so you don't hurt your partner with techniques that are meant to kill? Um, And so a lot of it is about, like, can you control yourself when you are doing these? Do you know how these actions work in such a way that, you know, if you were to do it, you know, for real, for real, Mm -hmm. um, it would, you know, it would actually hurt somebody or harm somebody. But how do you knowing how to kind of pull the hit in the way that the technique will still work while also not hurting your partner. Um, and really understanding of like pulling apart the, that intersectionality between that martial art and kind of the sport that it has, like, I'm not gonna say the sports turned into, but like it's, you kind of have these two tracks of like the sport and the martial art and what what you're talking about is really fascinating because it's like, okay, you've got this martial side of things where you have this, you have to understand and kind of be okay with the fact that you're learning how to kill people conceivably, but then you're training that for the sport to compete in. But I don't, I don't train that for the sport to compete. No, no. Yeah. And not a lot. And everybody's different in that way, which is why it's so fascinating. Yeah. But, and yeah, you know, the same the same fundamental technique can be trained for winning tournaments or yeah. for fencing your friends, which is different, or mm-hmm. for killing somebody who's trying to kill you, yeah, or who you just want to kill for whatever reason, right? Right, and it's it's the same physical motion, mm-hmm. but the the intent behind it is entirely yeah. different, and the way you train is different. Whether you want mm-hmm. to use it to win tournaments, use it to fence your friends, or use it train as if you were going to be trying to kill somebody with it tomorrow right it's, yeah, it's completely different it is completely different and that, that brings up an interesting point about um like the mindset of people you know when they come to tournaments is you will see people in tournaments who are doing the actions as if they are actually trying to kill you um, yes. and there that ends up it's where useful they, training i mean it's, it's useful, very bad behavior in a tournament but it's right, as a martial so, artist when i was going to tournaments one of the things i was looking for is people who were absolutely fucking nutcases because i needed to know whether my stuff would work against them yeah and because it's you kind of have to fence them differently if they don't have the correct split in their head between this is a competition and we're studying the martial art and i have to be especially aware of this because 
as a woman who competes in open tournaments, yeah. I get bullied a lot. It and it unfortunately it ends up happening like once a tournament where really? you know, like earlier this year, um, I was in I was doing my pool fights in an open tournament and I got ran out of the ring, pushed out of the ring after halt was called, like several okay. seconds after halt was called, and like you know he got hit like three or four times on the way in because he was just bull rushing, charging me, yeah. um, and it turned into a he didn't do that to anybody else that he fought. He just did it to me. And then afterwards he tried to explain to me that, Oh no, 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 that I didn't run you out of the ring after halt. That's grappling. That's something in fury. Fury does. Oh, okay. Speaking as a professional furista, I can say that's absolute bullshit. And Oh yeah, behalf, no, it's absolutely okay, bullshit. Don't, don't, don't judge all fury people by that uh, son no. of a bitch. Okay, good. No, absolutely right. not. No. And I've had and other that's people. Not grappling. Pushing people out of the ring is not grappling. Throwing them no, on no, the ground. It's... And, yeah. and then stabbing them is what Fiore would tell you to do. Right. No, exactly. And so that's definitely not what happened. He didn't even get the grapple until after Halt was called. And I was like backing up to try to get to stop him from doing anything. Um, but I mean, I've been thrown in tournaments that you're not supposed to throw people in. I've like onto concrete be- okay. because I'm smaller because that person it's like Marshall Lizard Brain took over. Marshall slash Lizard Brain took over. No, yeah, not Different. Marshall. No, so because a, a proper martial artist would understand what's going on. No, no, okay, yes, they're, I guess they're, they're taking it. Yeah, they, yeah, they are, and I don't think it's even Lizard Brain. I think it's more social dominance stuff. It's like you yeah, know, it's because to some men it's absolutely humiliating to get hit by a woman in a tournament. Yeah scenario and so if you do have the temerity to actually fence them the way you're supposed to then they have to basically reassert themselves because they're fragile little assholes right and i guess that's maybe kind of the point that i was making earlier is that we train the martial art we don't train the sport and so at least in my club we don't we we train the martial art and have a very distinct difference between okay we are learning we're going to learn how to throw a mortschlag correctly and yeah. we're going to do it in a safe way, but we're going to learn it because it's in the book. Like that was yeah. you know, something that's being taught. Um, but the, un, with the understanding is you never do this in a tournament. Like you never do this when you're actually fencing real people because it sure. is dangerous. Yeah. Okay. I think that'd be an interesting book. And if you want any, you know, <laughs> if you want, if you want to come back at me and have a, have a discussion offline or whatever about it, about these aspects of it, you know, feel free when you're when oh, you're yeah, in the writing process because I will yeah. hold you to this. Okay, you you are definitely the sort of person that you have an idea and then you actually act on it. Yeah. So, so for so, better or for worse. Yeah, yeah. So, so once once you're in book writing mode, let me know, and if you want any help, just ask. Yeah, please. I um I really love like this is part of the reason why I want to write a book on it is because this topic is just so fascinating to talk about it because is. there's so many intersections like even just with this discussion we were talking about there's so many different things to think about of the mentality of a person and the intent and it's just fascinating. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Good. Okay. Now, my last question. Um somebody gives you a million dollars to spend improving historical martial arts worldwide. Okay. And the rules are, okay, okay, you can't, you can't spend it on your own equipment collection. You can't okay. use it to buy your own sword. Um, you can't use it to pay off your mortgage, right? It has to be used to yeah, yeah. <laughs> improve historical martial arts worldwide. How would you spend it? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, 
I don't know. This might be. I don't know like how this answer is going to come across, but realistically, I think I would work to create not necessarily a like governing body for HEMA, but create a organization where you know people like much like the like the international like the powerlifting federation or like modern lifting fencing they have different or um like football uh, american football has like different orgs yeah. like there's um and everything so do something along those lines where groups that wanted to join could but now you have a governing body to be able to handle safety issues you have a governing body to help with insurance purposes because Right now, for insurance reasons, HEMA is lumped in with Bohurt in the U.S. Oh. And so, yeah, our, our and risk so, profile is very different. It is absolutely very different. But to and, the insurance company, we're the same thing. Yeah, and yeah. so, and we, insurance we've had is, a couple of a couple of Bohurt fighters on here: Beth Hammer and um, Dana Bergen Williams, I think it is. In, mm-hmm. So Beth in Seattle and Dana in New Zealand. So people aren't sure what Bohurt is. They can check out those episodes. Yeah, um, but yeah, it is. It is a very different prospect to, you know, a bit of a longsword tournament. Yeah, if I remember correctly, I don't know whether this is true or not, but it's definitely the number that's thrown around that in Bohurt, one in four people will come out of a match injured. Wow, that's very nice. And so, I like with that kind of thing. So insurance is really expensive. And so being having an, an organization that could act on behalf of those clubs and say, okay, this is the standard, like we have, this is the code of conduct to be a part of this and everything, but then also giving the ability of like tournaments that are like clubs that are smaller that want to host tournaments. Hey, we have this pool of judges that you can pull from so that you don't have to worry about trying to find judges or trying to find like experienced directors or table staff and like setting all of that up just to provide resources for everybody to be able to have that. Also maybe training those judges. Yeah, training the judges and just, I mean, we're doing judges training actually in our club uh, on Saturday and we're doing practice tournaments to, you know, have our judges practice. Uh, I I would be very much in favor of these judges being paid also. Yeah, um, paying the judges um, or like at the very least, like making sure that they have the correct training and everything. Because I know sports fencing judges are insane in how good they are and how much they're trained and tested and everything. And I don't think HEMA is there yet, but at the very least... (laughs) Not even close. We not, no, not but we should. But that would close. I would love to be like I aspire to to get to there because I think that yeah, would sure. be really great. Yeah, and that's it's a good point. Like like sport fencing has been developing for a couple of hundred years now, and the FIE was founded in I think 1913. It's at least a hundred years old, mm-hmm. and they survived the electrification thing in the 50s and 60s, which was a horrific thing to do. And then Sabre got electrified, I think, in the 80s. Um, and so they've been, they've been sort of evolving over the time and the rules are being applied differently in various mm-hmm. ways and, and whatnot. But they have, they have all of this experience and winners get Olympic gold medals, mm-hmm. right? Olympic medals. Right. Right. So the, the rewards for winning are much, much, much higher. Like we were talking about earlier. Like there's, yeah. you, you can be a professional fencer. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I think I think the tournament side of the historical martial arts scene would do well to learn more from the sport fences, I think. Well, and I even think just the rest of HEMA in general, what I think 
would be at least in terms of like having some sort of like an organization, like a governing organization would be really great because then you would have resources for underrepresented genders for those clubs. So if you only have a club with 10 people in it and you have, you know, one woman, let's say that woman would have all of the resources it with from that governing body to be able to understand here is, here's everything about this. Here's the gear that you should get. And then also people who are on their own would have a resource, like don't have a club near them would have a resource to either start a club on their own or, you know, have the books and understanding to be able to kind of get one going. What sort of resources are we talking about? Well, understanding of like, okay, you know, here are YouTube videos that you can watch, or here is um, our instructors that we have um, within our organization have created YouTube videos about specific topics for people within the organization to, you know, help training and everything. Um, Or just saying, okay, hey, here are the books, even the books that you can like look at for this. Yeah. I've just here, look, the art of combat from Meyer, this is a great one or um, any of Fiore's books or like Lichtenauer's books of just, what do we recommend in terms of like, here's the books for beginners. Like maybe here's where you should start to get an understanding Mm -hmm. and then, you know, choose, choose your starter Pokemon effectively of, of, of HEMA like masters. And then also, okay, if you liked this, Maybe you can try this next. Hmm. Or if you like this, you can try this next, that kind of thing. But you know I've already built that, right? Have you? Sorry, yeah. I, I don't I, I haven't been in HEMA that long, so I don't actually know. <laughs> I mean, okay. It's not a governing body at all, but it yeah. is it is a body of resources organized by interest. Oh, that's awesome. I did not yeah. know that, that existed. I'm going yeah. to <laughs> Is um, that on your website? Yeah, sourcebook.com. Yeah. Okay. It doesn't go, it doesn't go quite as broad as I'm planning to make it. Yeah. Um, but there's, yeah, there's all sorts of stuff like that. Like, you know, um, stuff on how to teach stuff on how to choose a sword, even, um, books on various topics, beginner stuff, more advanced stuff. See, I wish I had known that when I started, like, cause like, I'm going to have to like, make sure I give that resources to, you know, everybody like that starts and everything, because I guess just even knowing about like things like that, like I I didn't know that that existed. That's amazing. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Clearly my advertising is not as good as it should be. Um, I mean, also because HEMA is just an interesting thing Mm. because we, there is no like, there, I, like, I don't even think there's like a HEMA digest, like no. of everything that's happening. Like you have to find the Facebook group that has the information or you but have Facebook to like, group, they have a Facebook group. No, are and awful. They're, and, no, they're and, terrible. And I, and, I hate, I YouTube tried to delete my cesspool. Yeah, so. no, they're, it's, it's all terrible. And like trying yeah. to find like, okay. You, uh, right, this, <laughs> okay. One second. Okay. Sorry to interrupt. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I am currently working on the problem of there are lots of people who like swords. Mm-hmm. Some of them are assholes. Yes. Most of them are not. Yeah. Okay. And Facebook is a cesspool. Yes. And YouTube is a cesspool. Mm-hmm. Um, basically anything algorithm driven yeah. tends to be a race to the bottom. Right. Okay. Yep. Now uh, I have a discord server, which I set up a couple of years ago, basically to help, my students keep in touch with each other over lockdown and whatnot, whatever. And um, the filter there is um, anyone who's bought one of my books or one of my courses 
um, automatically get sent an invitation. Podcast guests also get invited. Um, so I'll be sending you a link in a bit. Awesome. <laughs> right. Um, and, and so we have a filtration system which keeps out the arseholes. And in yep. the two years that we've been running it, there has never been, I've never come across anything even approaching a flame war or mm-hmm. somebody being an arsehole. Right. Which is an extraordinary thing to say about any social media thing. Mm-hmm. Right. But Discord isn't optimal because like someone like Michael Chillister goes on and writes this great long thing going into this incredible depth and detail about, I don't know, some, some gloss on Codex Wallerstein mm-hmm. or something super specific and super valuable to that particular niche. But it's now lost in the Discord yeah. kind of feed, right? So what I'm planning to do, tell me what you think. What I'm planning to do is use a um, service like Mighty Networks, which allow you to create your own basically mini social media networks. Oh, that's cool. Right. And build it initially for my students, my readers and whatnot, because I can filter those more effectively. Mm-hmm. Have it as a paid service, mm-hmm. um, but with at least one tier that is extremely affordable, like $2 a month or something. Yeah. yeah. Right. But that just filters out the bots and it filters mm-hmm. out most of the assholes. Mm. Right. But yeah. Putting that barrier to entry there. Yeah. Yeah. So there's that little barrier to entry. Um, and you know, of course, you know, someone, someone where $2 is actually a meaningful amount of money. They can, you know, there'll be ways for people to get it for free, but not directly. You have to kind of yeah, come yeah. through a, through a gatekeeper to get in for free. Mm-hmm. Right. And then we have a safe space for historical martial arts people, including, I mean, I'm, people get this idea that I don't like the tournament scene. It's not true. I'm just not part of the tournament scene, which is mm-hmm. a different thing altogether. Right. Yeah. Like places where tournament fences can go and discuss training tactics and mm-hmm. that sort of um, organize, you know, how to organize a tournament and judging and all that sort of stuff. They'll, they can have their stuff there. And people who are nerding out about like, you know, was this in manuscript hand A or manuscript hand B in this manuscript, blah, 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 you mm-hmm. know, and people who are nerding out about that over there. And, you know, people who are really in it just to collect the swords but like to swim around a bit, they can have their equipment stuff there and their sword suppliers mm-hmm. and, you know, get some sword makers in to, um, you know, post their videos up of them bashing hot steel or whatever, right? So, yeah, so yeah. the sword world mm-hmm. would have this safe place where all the sword stuff is. Now, you mm-hmm. can't just like op- open the doors immediately because then it lets in all the shite. But... Is that closer to what you had in mind? Yeah, I think it's like a combination of a lot of these things. And I think with the more recently, the people who started joining and, you know, some of the old guard, um, like kind of pre-COVID and stuff, we're starting to put this together. It's a little piecemeal, but I think we're starting to trend in that direction. We're starting to create those types of spaces where, you know, everybody's there. Everybody just wants to talk about fun swords and we're starting to create like, you know, okay, well, let's do judging training so that, you know, we, we can actually train our judges versus just people who fight can also judge kind of thing. Um, but yeah, I think being able to have a lot of those resources set up so somebody doesn't, like not to throw shade, but like so somebody doesn't try to learn sword fighting from Shadowversary um, on <gasps> YouTube and then try to come into a real yeah. class and then have to inflict that on everybody. Um, yeah. But yeah, yeah, creating yeah. those spaces... 
so yeah. that you know we're creating safe fencers. Yeah. Okay. Okay. See, the issue with the governing body is that fencers do not like to be governed. You know. Yes. So it doesn't. But I have think. To, but I think it doesn't have to be a governing body. No, it doesn't necessarily have to be a governing body. I, I guess that's just kind of where my head is at, just yeah. in general. It's because, like, the big thing about governing bodies, irrespective of fencing, is you are giving something up to get something back. And so I think historically, a lot of the governing bodies that maybe HEMA has tried to put together have not been giving the right incentives back for what people mm. actually want. And so there hasn't been buy-in because a lot of people haven't, they don't see the need for it because they're so, they're in such a small area. And so maybe a governing body isn't for them. So that's why you wouldn't have one for everybody. It would just yeah. be for, for people who kind of wanted that type, that type of thing. Of so people how, who wanted how about, to, yeah. how about we, we sidestep half of the problem and instead of calling it a governing body, just call it an association. Sure. There you go. Yeah. Have like an association of people who want to have that type of thing, who there you say that you are agreeing to this type of code of conduct, but you know, you are getting all of these resources. You're getting everything else. You're getting, you know, experienced judges, you're getting tournament set up, help tournament running help. Like you're getting, um, you know, ability to have that kind of what you're creating, what you're talking about creating that kind of like kind of managed Mm. social network for fencers, you're getting those types of things, um, you know, for that. And I think, I don't know, that's just kind of where my head is at um, with a lot yeah. of that stuff, especially with, I mean, I'm obviously, I'm very much a tournament fencer. That is, sure. I, I have turned into a jock. <laughs> I, started, started, I don't know how that happened. Um, <laughs> and so I'm very into the training and everything. And so I, I, you know, I read some of the sources, but I don't, you know, I don't dig into it as much sure. as others. And so that's a lot where my head is at is because that's the world that I live in. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. And thing is, things are lost at either end of the extremes. Yeah. Right. Like, like a pure tournament fencer lacks the context and the historicity and the, the kind of the, the the depth and the breadth of the historical martial art, and they, there's only a very small subset of historical martial art technique that is appropriate to use in tournaments or would even work in tournaments, right? I would say it's like sixty percent, sixty to seventy percent. Not even close. Absolutely not. I, um, let me explain. Okay. Because because um, most tournaments don't allow. Even if even if it would technically work, most tournaments don't allow um, pommel strikes, throws, joint locks, those kind of things, which are absolutely fundamental to any medieval martial art, mm-hmm. right? Um, so there's that. So tournaments mm-hmm. don't allow. And like you mentioned yourself, the Morschlag is just too dangerous to use against somebody wearing a fencing mask. Yeah. Right? But also, let's say we're doing armored combat, right? Mm-hmm. I should lift your visor and stab you in the face, or I should wiggle my point into your armpit. Mm-hmm. We don't do that because that's, that's not safe. It's bad behavior. It's just not appropriate because the techniques that you would use to kill somebody in a fight are different to the techniques you would use to fence your friends. They just have to be. So, yes, and... So, like, when you're talking okay. about a mortgage you're talking about lifting somebody's visor up to stab in the face. Yeah, 100% agree. But when you're talking about pommel strikes, I feel like at least... 
you have to know how to train them safe. You have to train them safely, but you have to train them at full speed to know oh, how to be sure. safe. And, I'm, and so, I'm, yeah, yeah. I guess what I'm saying is, but most is that, tournaments don't allow them. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. There you go. Or yeah, so you, you have to like it. present the pommel. Yeah, and that's I don't necessarily. I don't necessarily agree with that, but also I totally get it because a lot of people like I can't imagine trying to have a pommel strike against like a per like a buffalo trying to run at me in a in a thing of like oh hey you're smaller than me I'm gonna pommel you in the head, but yeah we got off on a tangent but yeah I I don't know at least from where I come from from Meyer uh, most of the techniques at least in the longsword section are yeah, but, viable for like Meyer is stuff. a Meyer is a tiny That's, tiny yeah. section of the whole. I told you I'm a jock. I, I yeah, do right. one thing and I yeah, do yeah, yeah. I do it okay, but I do okay. one thing. Okay, but but to complete my thought, <laughs> yeah, yeah. at the other That's end fair. where you have people who are just yeah. really into the historical side of things and they want to get everything exactly like the the books and whatever, if they don't have any tournament experience, there mm -hmm. are all sorts of things that they can't. They don't have the opportunity to learn, which would. Mm -hmm deeply inform their interpretation process. Oh, right? yeah. I like, a million percent agree. 100%. Right. Yeah. So so my point is just that at either extreme, stuff is mm -hmm. lost. And mm -hmm. so it's useful, even if, let's say, even if you, if a person has no interest in, in actually fencing tournaments, really, as a martial artist, at some point in their career, they should spend a couple of years going to tournaments because they will learn stuff there that will be useful then for the rest of their career. And likewise, you know, I look at, honestly, I look at the tournament scene as a kind of, um, like a fishing net mm -hmm. for historical martial artists because a lot of people come into it because they think in terms of sports and tournaments mm -hmm. and that makes sense. And so that's how they, that's how they find us and that's where they mm -hmm. start. But then they filter through and find the historical stuff and that's actually their jam and off they go. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, that, that's why I'm, I'm, I'm very much of the opinion that, you know, at, at either extreme, um, stuff is lost. So, you know, but hopefully yeah. at, some, at some point in your, in your, I don't know, 40 year historical martial arts career, um, mind you, you started very young, maybe 50 year historical martial arts career, you know, there, there will, there will probably come a period where you get sucked into the sources. Oh, absolutely. I know, I know it's coming. Yeah. <laughs> it's um, like, it's already started to happen a little bit because I know okay, when good. I first started, it was just, I'm just going to go to classes. I'm just going to learn how to do this. But then as you know, I started to get more like into it, obviously it became like a core part mm -hmm. of my identity. I started to get into like, okay, I need to, I need to learn how to read this <laughs> and then say, yeah. okay, how is he actually describing this? What are the thought processes behind at least Meyer specifically? And I know that eventually it'll get to the point where like okay i've done meyer what are other sources that i could work on that kind of thing um yeah but i absolutely agree with you like at either end you, at one end you lose the why and the other end you lose the how that's a very good way to put it <laughs> and an excellent place to finish that but just before we do need to remind people to go and buy your chest protector thing yes uh, supporting the indiegogo is um is yeah. great <laughs> <laughs> so cryptid cryptid combat wear that's c-r-y-p-t-i-d combatwear.com and you can yes. find links there brilliant well thanks so much for joining me today Veronica it's been lovely to meet you yeah thank you this was awesome thank you so much for having me I really appreciate it thanks for listening I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Veronica you can find the episode show notes and of course those all important links at swordschool.com forward slash podcast where you'll find transcriptions photos videos and as I said links for this episode while you're there, you can sign up for my mailing list and I'll send you a free copy of my Sword Persons Care Package. This includes four ebooks and access to several of my online courses.
And just a reminder about my birthday present. You can use the code GUYTURNS49 to get £5 off any of my books at swordschool.shop or 30% off any course at courses.swordschool.com. The code will work to the end of December 2022. That's GUYTURNS49, all caps, all one word, at swordschool.shop and courses.swordschool.com. A slight change to our usual programming. We are heading into the festive season and frankly, podcast listeners go through the floor um, at this time of the year. And you may also be aware that it's been a rather difficult couple of months for me. So I'm very much behind on my podcast interviewing. So I'm going to rerun a couple of popular episodes over the festive period and get back with new programming in the new year. Join me next week when I'll be repeating my conversation with the excellent Kayatan Sadowski, where we talk about, among other things, Gudino's system for the use of two swords at once, very snazzy, and we also go into depth and detail on his book, The Extraordinary Fear is the Mind Killer, one of my top 10 martial arts books of the century so far. So, you don't want to miss that, even if you have heard it again, it's well worth a re-listen, So you can subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcast from. And while you're there, please do rate the show. And if you have an extra minute, leave a review. It really helps. Thanks for listening. And I will see you next week. (laughs) 